everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, Energy Science Meeting. Um, I'm here with the three brilliant scientists who have just uh, spoken in our comorbidities symposium. Um, and they spoke about really interesting and, and very kind of different, but also really sort of overlapping topics in many ways. There's a lot of stuff about inequalities and stigma and access to services. Um, Bridget Callahan is going to talk to us first of all. Her talk um, was entitled Brain, Mind, Body how our early environments shape brain-gut communication across development. Um, this is really interesting work, Bridget, animal and human work. Tell us about your work. Yeah, so um, thank you very much. I, I, I like doing it. Um, so I, I, I guess my work is really trying to understand how particularly early life uh, caregiving adversity, um, so I separate um, pups, young rat pups from their mother and then in humans I, I don't actually separate them but I look at humans who've had the misfortune of being separated from their caregivers and then I'm really trying to understand this intersection that we have between particularly physical health that involves the gastrointestinal system as well as our mental health but I do have this wide interest in kind of what we call functional physical health disorders so that is um, disorders that involve physical health but there's no known medical cause um, and um, our mental health problems so sometimes people call those somatic symptoms um, and we know that these are elevated following um, various forms of early life adversity particularly those that involve the caregiver and so as um, one component to try and link what's happening in the gut with what's happening with mental health, behaviour and the brain, I also look at what we call the gastrointestinal microbiome, which basically just means the bacteria that live inside the gut, um, and how that is connected to our, the way that we think and feel about things and um, also our brain function. So I use functional MRI, so magnetic resonance imaging, basically just big magnets that take photographs of our brain uh, while we're doing things um, in the scanner. And then I, I correlate that with what's happening at the level of the gut. I guess the ultimate aim is to eventually get to a stage where we can um, try and figure out how to live our lives in a way that promotes what's you know, a healthy microbiome, a healthy gut, and then hopefully improve our mental health um, in part as a result of that. So there's, there's a lot of stuff coming out with brain-gut axis mm -hmm. in the title at the moment. Yes. For a layperson, can you explain what that means yeah. and what mental health conditions are particularly related to mm -hmm. this work in the gut? Yeah, so the brain-gut axis is really referring to um, the, the literal communication highway that exists between the brain and the gut. Um, and so there are numerous different components to this axis. So you have obviously the brain and the gut itself. Um, and then some people expand this out to the brain gut microbiome axis. So you've got those gut bacteria that are being involved there as well. You have um, things like stress hormones, enteric muscles, so the muscles that make the gastrointestinal system move and work. You've got the various neurotransmitters and metabolites, so sort of the chemicals that the gut bacteria produces, they're involved there as well. And then you've got the way that the two systems communicate. So you have the vagus nerve, so that's a form of electrical communication. You have these neurotransmitters and metabolites, so there's kind of chemical um, control there. And then you also have um, the immune system is, is tightly um, related to both of them as well. So those are some of the ways that the, the gut and brain communicate. And then um, in terms of mental health disorders, there are numerous mental health disorders that seem to um, have a microbiome component. And I guess because this field is really um, at a stage where it's expanding now, there's been a lot of attention paid and a lot more research happening. So a lot more um, uh, correlations are coming out between several different disorders and the microbiome. So we know that anxiety, depression, um, ADHD, um, 
autism all seem to have some sort of microbiome component and then uh, you know there's also physical health problems like parkinson's disease and demyelinating disorders like ms that seem to have a microbiome component as well so exactly how much those um, overlap is is unknown at this stage but it's clear that the microbiome is involved in many different uh, disorders and it's well publicized it's well known that childhood adversity has a big link with all sorts of physical and mental health conditions yes. you were talking yeah. in your presentation about children from the care system looked mm -hmm. after children mm -hmm. who don't get to experience the outside world mm -hmm. in the first few months or years of their lives mm -hmm. and the impact that that has on them. Can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the populations of children that I work with um, are kids who've been in institutional care or orphanage care, um, typically overseas. Um, so um, in our study, we had a lot of children from China, Russia, uh, the Ukraine, um, many different areas, um, living either in um, institutions or foster care environments with some kind of institutional component, and then adopted into American families. Um, so that environment is, is very abnormal for many psychosocial reasons, but also from the perspective of the microbiome. So a lot of these children uh, don't get much of a chance, if any, to play outside. So they're not being exposed to dirt. They're certainly not being exposed to pets and, and other things that we know shape our microbiome. A lot of these children are surrendered very early in life. So we sometimes don't know much about you know, the mode of birth, were they vaginal or cesarean section, whether they got any exposure to breast milk, which we know shapes the microbiome as well. Um, and then sometimes a very restricted diet in institutions um, can characterize uh, these children. So they might not have had much exposure to the sorts of um, dietary variables that we know influence the microbiome. Yeah. Really interesting work. Mm. Thanks so much for sharing it with Thank us. Thank you. I'm going to move on now to Claire Llewellyn, who gave a very interesting and engaging talk um, on obesity, a matter of the mind, body and behaviour. Claire, tell us a bit about your work in this area and how obesity and mental health relate to each other. Yeah, so um, I'm an obesity researcher by background um, and most of my research focuses on trying to understand the etiology of obesity, so what really causes it, why it arises, when it happens and so on. Um, especially how the current, what we call the obesogenic environment, um, interacts with individual genetic susceptibility and social factors. Um, so what we know from decades of research into the causes of obesity, it's actually a highly complex um, condition that, um, if, that develops an interaction between genetic susceptibility um, and exposure to an environment which, in which the incentive structures encourage eating a bit too much and not moving enough. Um, it develops very early in life and there are really stark social inequalities in obesity that you can see even in uh, reception year in primary school. Um, obesity is really, really commonly um, a comorbidity of mental health disorders and in particular depressive disorders um, and eating disorders. And so um, we've been trying to, well, many researchers have been trying to get to the bottom of the nature of that relationship, which way it's going and, and why they're related. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. So um, firstly, well, probably let's go back one step. It's a, it's a very complicated bi-directional relationship. So um, having a mental health disorder increases your risk of developing obesity and having obesity increases your risk of developing a mental health disorder. Um, and they can directly influence each other, but there's probably common factors that 
also cause both of them, which mean that they look like they're related, but actually it's just because they're caused by the same thing. Um, there's lo- lots and lots and lots of different biological, psychological, social um, and behavioural factors uh, that can explain this relationship. We know a little bit less about the relationship between mental health disorders causing obesity. Some of the key things are um, social things. So as a result of developing a mental health disorder, many people have to work less, they have periods out of work or they lose their job. Um, That impacts on their um, income level. And poverty um, is a risk factor for obesity. It's, you know, being able to join a virgin gym and... um, eats um, really well is actually something that requires a reasonable amount of income. Um, Psychologically, things like emotional eating are very common um, among people, especially with things like depression. Behaviourally, it's actually quite difficult to adhere to healthy eating and engaging physical activity if you are living with a mental health problem. It's something that we all find quite difficult to do, so that adds another burden. Um, into the mix and there are psychological things things like self-efficacy if you feel that you're um, unable to do anything very well then you're less likely to feel that you're going to be able to manage healthy eating engaging physical activity and so on thinking about the other direction so why is it that people with obesity are at high risk of developing a mental health disorder Um, there are important biological reasons for that. So um, obesity is a risk factor for a number of um, non-communicable diseases, things like type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, and they can in themselves can lead to functional impairment, which just makes your life very difficult, and that can lead to mental health problems. Um, There are also psychological factors, so people with obesity often have low self-esteem and low body image. Um, And there are behavioural factors, so... um, Obesity is also linked with um, sometimes a poorer diet and lower levels of physical activity, not all the time. Um, And those things in themselves can um, have a play causal role in the development of mental health problems, especially things like depression. But a really, really key thing in the link between obesity and mental health is the experience of stigma. And um, it's a huge problem in the UK. In fact, Most um, countries that have undertaken surveys have found it to be a big problem. And what research has shown, which is quite intriguing and points very much towards stigma playing a very important role, is that the perception of having obesity is more important than the actual number on the scales um, and your BMI. So the psychological um, effect of the experience of having obesity is, is really important um, in your risk of developing particularly depression and anxiety disorders. So weight stigma is a, a really important linking factor here. Um, and in very simple terms, what it is, is having negative attitudes and beliefs about someone simply because of their body size. Um, it's... It, it manifests itself in um, harmful stereotypes that lead to prejudice and discrimination. So there are absolutely numerous studies um, of the sorts of stereotypes that arise in public discussion, especially in the media. Things like um, people with obesity are um, lacking in self-efficacy, um, lack willpower, have uh, low self-esteem, um, 
are lazy and gluttonous, unintelligent, all of the possible offensive things that you could possibly imagine. Um, they've been said publicly about um, obesity. And what's possibly most concerning about this whole area is that it's quite prevalent um, even among health pre- healthcare professionals who um, people with obesity are accessing to, to, um, to have treatment for obesity. So it's been reported um, in, in, amongst doctors, nurses, dietitians, psychologists, paediatricians. But it's also, it, it, you know, it pervades every sort of domain of, of life, um, including uh, education, all the way through from primary school to uh, university level. Um, the media plays a big role. It's found in the courtroom. And people commonly experience it by friends and family. And I think that's quite complex because sometimes... It's meant in a well-meaning way, and weight stigma um, can be quite subtle. It doesn't have to be, you know, overt criticism. It can just be constant nagging comments about, um, you know, you need to, you need to lose weight. You need to do a bit more exercise. You need to eat better. Why aren't you, you know, doing? Why are you having that portion of food for your evening meal? That kind of thing. It strikes me that there's lots of parallels with the stigma in mental health and the fact that we're now, you know, we haven't solved that yet, but we've certainly done a lot of work over the last 10 or 15 years to reduce stigma. And also, if you look at the anti-stigma research in mental health, it shows us that the groups that are most stigmatising to people with mental health problems are mental health professionals. For me, that's a really um, surprising finding. When you think about it, it's actually not that surprising um, because there is a definite kind of detachment, them and us sort of attitude, which you sometimes have in, in services. Yeah. I think, I wonder what we can learn in trying to quash obesity stigma from what we've done in mental health. So it's funny you should say that because a lot of um, the work that is being undertaken in the obesity research world in relation to weight stigma um, is borrowing um, from the the sort of progress that's been made in mental health. Um, And in particular, we have only just, and you're going to be shocked about this, we've only just really started trying to use person-first language in obesity. Um, And this has been something that's been done for years and years in mental health and um, in relation to disability. And it's, it's, I think it's been important in making progress. And actually, having said that, there's, there's no real clear consensus at the moment about what the right language is. It's definitely a matter of discussion. Um, But certainly there's a move towards, when I say person-first, I mean, um, describing someone as having obesity rather than defining someone by their body size so person with obesity rather than obese person Um, but there's a lot I think that a lot more that we can do aside from the language in terms of the actual images that are used when talking about obesity in reports about obesity in the media so classically what you see are images that reinforce all of those stereotypes you see a headless torso of someone eating a hamburger, sitting on the couch watching TV. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can um, photograph people of all different body sizes um, engaging in health behaviours that, you know, we don't need to do that. And it's really um, and counterintuitive, it's not helping. So I think also part of the, the misunderstanding with weight stigma is that people think that you can shame people into losing weight, and it's a good thing to do. And I've been invited to take part in debates on national television about whether or not we should be fat-shaming children. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's the, 
that's the level of stigma that we have in the UK, that people think it's acceptable to even be having those discussions um, and in relation to children. But it's, it's a completely misguided um, way forward because actually there's just buckets of research showing that um, weight stigma quite ironically begets more obesity-related behaviours. So it, it's associated with um, dieting repeat, with, followed by binge eating and weight cycling with more dieting, more binge eating, more weight cycling. People tend to gain more weight over time and develop disordered eating over time. So this is completely unhelpful. It's probably harming mental health and it's certainly harming physical health. Yeah. So there's, there's much better ways forward. It's really brilliant work. Thanks Thank for you. presenting it here. Really That's interesting. Right. <laughs> We've got great um, engagement on Twitter as well. So, last but not least, Simon Gilbody from York, uh, who gave a really interesting talk on his work on smoke-free mental health services from rhetoric to reality. Some of which you can't talk about, Simon, because it's not yet published. Um, but it will be in the next few days. Tell us, tell us about this work that you've done. Well, I can't talk about, it, but I can whet people's appetite, I guess. So, um, so Andre, thank you very much for um, for, for your questions. And um, um, it was really exciting to be able to talk about one of my passions, which is smoking and smoking behaviour, and helping people who use mental health services um, who want to quit to quit. So that's the notion of of what we do. So this sits within a, a wider body of research that um, is 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 trying to address this profound health inequality that exists between people who use mental health services and people who don't. So this mortality gap is a really important thing that's been observed and it's not getting better, it's getting worse year on year. And um, we are interested in some of the important modifiable risk factors for early death for, um, for people, particularly with the more severe and enduring mental health problems. And obesity is a problem, so it's interesting to be able to follow on from Claire. And, um, and all the things that she's talked about, about sort of um, 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 obesity, the impacts of obesity on physical health and also the way in which people who um, um, have weight problems are stigmatised are true in spades for the, um, the section of the population where we work. And um, But one of the other difficulties that's been observed time and time again is the fact that people who use mental health services are much more likely to smoke than people who don't use mental health services. So, um, so I'm interested in trying to understand why that might be because... Um, um, What's also interesting is when you ask people who use mental health services who are smokers if they're interested in cutting down or quitting, the vast majority of them do actually <coughs> want to do something about it. So um, part of our research has been trying to understand um, how we might take the things that we know for the rest of the population and contextualise them and perhaps tweak them and ensure that they work and are fit for purpose for people who use mental health services to try and enable people who want to quit successfully quit so we've been digging away at this for a good few years now so we spent some time conducting some systematic reviews to try and look at the trial-based evidence that might counter one of the things that um, is all too prevalent in mental health services and that's therapeutic nihilism the sense particularly amongst people who work in mental health services that there's nothing that you can do for smoking that it sits in the too difficult box so that was useful for us in the first instance find out from the existing trials if the things that work for the broader population whether they are acceptable and whether they're effective for people who use mental health services so when we did systematic reviews we found that there were more trials than we thought might be out there and when we put them together they all pointed in the direction of smoking cessation interventions being effective 
for people who use mental health services. And more than that, they were both effective, but were also um, um, quite had a positive impact on people's mental health. So that enabled us to counter some of the misperceptions about smoking, that smoking's good for your mental health, that smoking is a good stress response, and that if you quit smoking, that it can be detrimental to your mental health. So it demonstrated that things could be safe but could also be effective, but there was no big zinger trial that enabled us to really shift services along. So, um, so having done the systematic reviews and looked at some of the economic evidence, some of the epidemiological evidence, some of the qualitative research that was out there, we spent some time working with colleagues who know a thing or two about the most effective ways of helping people to quit smoke. So we worked with colleagues at University College London and with the, um, the National Centre for Smoking Cessation and Training, fantastic fantastic organisation that produced brilliant resources and summarised the evidence and have produced the training programmes that underpin the wonderful things that are done in the NHS by NHS Quit Smoking Services and they helped us show what works but also we spent some time thinking about how you might adapt those interventions so that they're acceptable and were fit for purpose for people who use mental health services. So we did a lot of preparatory work and we also conducted a pilot study to, um, to perhaps counter some of the cynicism about whether we'd be able to do trials in this area. So in particular, the funders were quite risk-averse when they came to support research in this area. They said, well, it's an important question, but we want you to demonstrate that you can do it in a pilot fashion first. So they funded us to um, um, carry out um, the first substantial randomised controlled trial in the United Kingdom, but in a pilot form. So we conducted the Scimitar trial, and that was published about two, three years ago in Lancet Psychiatry, and it showed that the uptake of these specially adapted, um, evidence-supported smoking cessation interventions that were based on the things that we know work in, um, in, in general um, um, smoking cessation services, that if we take those interventions, people with severe mental ill health who want to quit, they readily engage with those interventions. They liked it. They liked the way in which it was delivered and they were quite happy to sit down and work out and work towards a quit date, for example. And then once they'd um, set a quit date, they were quite happy to receive support to try and maintain the early gains and try and stay um, smoke-free rather than relapsing. So when we looked at the trials, the uptake of the intervention that I've just described was much higher than just signposting people off to general box standard NHS quit smoking services. So that gave us a sense that we were onto something, that specially adapted smoking cessation interventions would be particularly useful for this population. Um, but it wasn't sufficient evidence to enable us to do things like get it into nice guidelines or to um, formulate the basis of NHS policy. Um, so we went back to the funder and we received more substantial funds to enable us to um, undertake what is the largest ever trial ever conducted anywhere in the world for a population of people who use mental health services. So we used the intervention that we developed in our pilot trial and our feasibility studies and we rolled it out across um, 25 NHS trusts and even more primary care trusts. We spent a lot of time working with colleagues in a range of different mental health settings to try and identify people who use mental health services who are smokers, often heavy smokers, and who wanted to do something about their smoking behaviour. So my starting point was we were helping people who wanted to quit to quit. 
Um, so we undertook this trial, we recruited over 500 participants and the results, they've now been analysed and they are soon to enter the public domain and they'll be published in Lancet Psychiatry probably in the next two or three weeks. So um, um, we're very excited about those results and we'd be happy to come back and speak about those results in the fullness of time. But um, it, it sits within this broader body of research that I think we lead the way in in this country. There's very few people working in this space around the globe and um, it also sits within a much broader interest and enthusiasm that um, is seeking to reduce this profound health inequality for people with um, particularly severe mental ill health, trying to chip away at those institutional, organisational, historical and cultural barriers that exist to people getting good health care. So, um, so smoking is part of that story, but we've got lots more work to do that. And we're working away um, just at the moment in a, a network that's been funded by um, UKRI, and the um, ESRC, and we're going to be doing more work in that space over the next four years. So um, we, we, we've begun the journey with smoking, but we've um, got lots of other research, lots of other collaborators that um, we want to work with. And it's an interesting place to work. It sort of forces you to work with people that you haven't historically worked with. And um, so smoking was a really exciting one for us. We made friends with people in the world of smoking, and they've been tremendously supportive. And um, we want to repeat that experience of working with the best people to crack this important problem over coming years so um, so yeah that's it grand great work thank you simon thank you claire thank you bridget for joining me uh, good luck in the future with all your work thank, thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you.